Our Father, we just pray that uh, this morning, by your Spirit, you will open your word to us. I pray that you will help us to see you and to know you. Uh, You are a great God. You are high and holy. It is our finite nature that keeps us from perceiving you the way that you are, but more, it is our sin. And so, Father, I pray that you will allow us this morning to see you as clearly as finite sinners can this side of glory. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will forgive us for our sins through the application of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will lead us on in love and in holiness, in faithfulness and joy and hope. Father, I pray that you will open your word. I pray that you will feed us by it. I pray that you will uh, make us wise as we seek to grow. I pray that you will nourish us. I pray that in all things you will be uh, greatly exalted. Uh, We know that we can't make you bigger or more wonderful or more glorious than you are. Uh, You are intrinsically and maximally perfect in all things. But it is our desire to see you more accurately to exalt you by more accurately perceiving who you are, uh, knowing that if we knew you better, you would occupy uh, larger and larger places in our lives as you ought to. And so, Father, I pray that again by your Spirit this morning, you will reveal yourself to us, speak through your word, guide us and help us, strengthen us with accurate understanding, but also with deep-hearted absorption of your truth. May this be to us life, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have, as a church, we've been working through the Bible in a year, and uh, we're just finishing up Deuteronomy. So this morning I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is not a chapter that I would pick if I was preaching topically. Uh, It's not a chapter I would pick uh, if I wanted to aim at creating uh, a sort of happy mood for us when we leave today. Uh, I, I take this chapter because it's part of the Word of God, but also because it's essential in terms of the theology of the first five books of the Bible. It is utterly essential also in terms of understanding the historical reality that Israel experiences throughout the remainder of the Old Testament era. In fact, this chapter is essential uh, to even understand what's going on with Jesus. And so we want to look at it. It's a long chapter. And in the older and original and better senses of these two words, it is terrible and awful. Uh, it, it is the sort of thing that you should approach and not be able to be unmoved when you come through it. It's not to be rushed. It is, even this morning, the reading of it uh, and the discussion that we have about it uh, will not do justice to it. It's something that must be thought about again and again and again and again and deeply meditated upon. I had contemplated not reading it. Uh, in one go, because uh, it is a chunk. thought about reading a few verses and making comments or reading a few more verses. But part of the message of it is 
the sheer overwhelming nature of it as it comes wave after wave after wave after wave. And if you break up the waves, you sort of miss the impact of it. So, this is the word of God. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if... You can be, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. And the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. 
The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, and you will eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, and no one will rescue them. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation, and you will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. The people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because the locust will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, but you will be the tail. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. 
the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or olive oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. Because of the suffering that your enemies will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. And he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all he has left. Because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of all your cities. The most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears. For in her dire need, she intends to eat them secretly because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your cities. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You who are as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind. Eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening. And in the, in the evening, if only it were morning. Because of the terror that will fill your heart and the sights that your eyes will see. The Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt on a journey I said you should never make again. There you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But no one 
will buy you. Verses 1 and 15 are conditional statements. If you obey. If you do not obey. It's as simple as that. The responsibility for the consequences of the nation are given to the nation. God is saying, let me be perfectly clear. Let me tell you precisely what will happen if you obey. Let me tell you precisely what will happen if you will honor me. Let me tell you exactly what I will do if you trust me. But let me also tell you, let me make it explicitly clear what will happen to you if you don't. Let me tell you exactly what will be your lot if you turn away from me and from my word. If you obey, if you do not obey. That's the run of this entire section. Now, the first 14 verses, one might almost suggest, would be better to read, preach those, and not worry about what comes next. And that's, of course, that's, that's how you can be a much more popular pastor. Let's just take these things, you know, these are good things, let's just talk about that. But in the counsel of God, the proportion is four times more material dedicated to the curses. And so you simply, if you're going to be fair to what the word of God says, you have to take it in proportion and balance. Now, without working through this exactly, the first 14 verses show you categorically that if you are obedient to the Lord, every sphere of your life will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you go out. You'll be blessed when you come in. In an agrarian society... This is the totality of blessing. This is why so much of this is cast in terms of um, agricultural fertility. For most of us, we have absolutely no idea you know, what it's like to really be dependent on the weather. We know we are. Like we kind of remember that from school, that crops just don't magically grow. Uh, but today, most, most adults think that crops, even if there's a drought somewhere in the world, crops will still just show up in the grocery store. Like, like food comes from the grocery store. That's the adults. Kids don't even know that. Kids think that food comes through drive through windows. Right? So there's a total disconnect here uh, between what we actually need to do to take care of, of, of land and how indebted we are to soil and, and conditions. Everyone in Israel knew this. Because everyone in Israel, even if you lived in a city, the city was nothing like any city that we've ever known. The cities were just really tiny little hamlets. Just little tiny villages. And, and so even then, you didn't have anyone. You, you didn't have anyone alive in Israel who didn't understand the, the, sort of the fundamentals of agriculture and husbanding animals. If you work through this, fruit of your womb, blessing the city and country, crops, livestock, basket, kneading trough, that's totality of blessing. 
That's everything people in this type of society could want. It's a vision of blessing. Your enemies will attack you, but will flee. The Lord will bless your barns and everything you put your hand to. The peoples will see how great God is when they see how richly God has blessed you. So even there, there's a reminder. I will take care of you, but it's not just for your sake. As if the motivation for obedience might be a crass appeal to my own selfishness. And I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this. I mean, the Bible does give uh, unblushing promises of incredible reward. But that's never the priority. The priority is honor God and let him sort it out. He'll bless you in the end. But there may be a lot of trials and heartache you go through. God's more interested in your, in your character and in your heart than he is in your comfort. That's a difficult lesson for us to learn. Our entire North American society is designed to maximize comfort at all costs. And so as soon as you end up going through something difficult, you can almost feel that God has let you down. When God is, actually just has different priorities, just a totally different priority structure uh, than what you find uh, sort of in our world at large. You'll be the top, not the bottom. God gives utter promises of comprehensive blessing. And then you hit verse 15. And we don't have time to work through all of this, but it's the converse of verses 1 through 6, the, the first few verses. Basically, everything God said he would do, he not only won't do, that is, he won't positively bless you, but negatively, you will experience curse. You'll experience hardship. You'll experience famine. Uh, the, the fertility of the ground will be affected. The fertility of, of the flocks will be affected. And as we read through this text, you see that there is death, there is sickness, there is drought. When the sky above you is bronze and the ground beneath you is iron, nothing grows. That's the point. This is an utter disaster. When the rain is dust, how much moisture, how much, how much of a chance do the crops have if the rain itself is dust? This is the, the most sort of horrific vision of conditions that must generate famine that you can imagine. And when you had famine in Israel, they didn't just raise the price on the cucumbers they were shipping in from Mexico by a quarter and still bomb them over to where they were. When there was famine, people died. That's what happened. Which actually is well worth considering the next time you go grocery shopping. We live, again, in a society where even if things aren't quite as fresh as we might like, you can eat enough nutritious food all year long to prevent yourself from getting diseases, like scurvy, and dying. But in most times in the history of the world, that wasn't a possibility. In fact, in many parts of the world today, that's not a possibility. When there was drought, there was death. If the Lord doesn't go with the army, the army is defeated. People will look at the nation as an object of horror. They were told, if you obey, the Lord will bless you. People will look at you and they'll fear you. They'll see how, um, how great God is by how richly you're blessed. But if you disobey, people will look at you in horror because of what you've been reduced to in the national landscape. All kinds of terrible diseases. There's blindness and insanity. 
They'll lose their military engagements. In verse 36, there's exile to foreign nations. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to your ancestors. This is sort of the climactic covenant curse. God brings them out of Egypt through the deliverance and redemption, Passover, crossing of the Reed Sea, Sinai, wilderness, 40 years, and finally, in accord with his promises to Abraham, brings them into the promised land. That's where they're supposed to be. God has established this home for them. To be driven out of that home is, in a sense, the undoing of the primal promise to Abraham. Now, God will still be faithful to his covenant. He's going to bring the people back eventually. But the generation can lose that contact. And God here warns them, your stay in the land is contingent on your obedience. If you don't obey, I will drive you out. All your prosperity will be lost. You will be cursed as a sign so that all nations will learn to revere God. You will exchange the covenant of God for a yoke of iron. You are choosing to exchange blessing for death. The Lord will put a foreign power over you. And then verses 53 through 57, you have this nadir point where it just can't get worse than this. Where parents cannibalize their own children. And what you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to just, just sort of read that and move on. You're supposed to stop and realize that these, these, these were real people just as we are real people who didn't love less than we do, who didn't, who, who didn't feel less than we do. And so you're supposed to think of someone that you really care about who's just had a newborn baby or someone who's pregnant. You're supposed to envision them eating the afterbirth and eating their dead infant. Because you simply cannot understand what this text is saying unless you do that. And even as you do that, there must be a recognition that your imagination is nothing compared to the reality. Not even the faintest thing. Whatever time of day it is, you'll wish it was the other time. This is categorical, 24-hour-a-day madness and despair and terror. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever had the flu. You have. One of the things that often happens to me when I'm sick is, you know, at night, if you're getting up, especially if you're vomiting, and, and you're not sleeping well, and you just, oh, the night's going on forever. I just wish it was morning. And morning comes, and, and you feel sick, and you are sick, and, and you're, you're achy and all the rest. You go, oh, I just wish, I could, wish it was night. I just wish I could go to bed. And, and when it's night, you wish it was morning. When it's morning, you wish it was evening. And you just can't get comfortable, you can't get any rest. I remember reading uh, uh, when I was a kid, 
uh, a story of someone who survived you know, an enormous number of days at sea. Uh, it was a Japanese sailor. And uh, the boat sunk and survived an enormous amount of time uh, on a raft. And it would say that out in the Pacific, it would be freezing cold at night. And he'd shiver at night and just wished it was the day. All night long. And in the day, as the sun beat down on him, he would just wish it was night. No matter what time of day, it was tormenting wishing things were different. And the Lord says, that is what you will be like. In the morning, you'll say, if only it were evening. In the evening, if only it were morning, you will never escape your terror and your horror. Ever. You will undo my redemption, God says. I brought you out of Egypt. You will choose to go back. You will say it would be better to be slaves in Egypt than to endure what we're enduring. And so we'll go back. And what were they in Egypt? Slaves. Slavery and oppression. And don't forget, when they were in Egypt, what was happening to the, to the, to the sons who were born? They're being put to death. And God says, you, after all I've done for you, you choose to reject my covenant. You choose to disobey me. You will long for the improvement of being slaves whose sons are being executed by your captors. That's an improvement in your life. And so what you're going to do, as much as I have given you all that I've given you, you are going to go back to Egypt. And you are going to say, we will be your slaves. Keep putting our sons to death. That's what we want. We will serve you at any cost. And no one will buy you. You can't get lower than that, can you? I'm going to go back to Egypt and beg them to take me as a slave and they will reject me even at that point. They will not take me as a slave. That's the low rock bottom. And it's all contingent. If you obey. If you do not obey. You can motivate some people by holding out to them love and beauty and joy. And you can motivate other people by telling them the negative consequences of what they'll experience if they don't grab love and hope and joy. But for a lot of us, sadly, we tend to be more motivated by avoiding pain than by pursuing the real delight that God offers us. There's a lot more warning here about the negatives than there is the positive. But the positive should have been enough to, to pursue God, to truly pursue God, all the love and joy that's offered. If the people reject God, in the end, God will reject them and the Egyptians will reject them too. Before, the Egyptians wanted them to stay as their slaves. Now the Egyptians will be given the free opportunity to have them back and they'll be rejected. Now, allow me to make a few general observations about this text then. That's a bit of the run through it. Uh, lots ought to be said about the details in these verses. I just don't have time. Let me make a few general observations. 
one. There is slightly a logical order here, but not much. So you get to repetition. You, you get sort of recapitulation as you go through. You're supposed to come out of this with an overall impression of terror and horror and disaster. And I will tell you this. For those of you who are, who are up to date on the Bible reading program, if you read this chapter and you did not close your Bible feeling sick to your stomach, you didn't read it. This is not a text that it is possible to read through and not be emotionally affected if you read it at all. Reading is different from scanning words. There is a point in this text which is that you are supposed to feel nauseous. You are supposed to feel the horror and the weight of how terrible this is. You are not supposed to be able to read this casually. That is no, the one thing you must not do with this text. You must not read it as if it's just you know, a, a psalm or something. This is awful. This records what it looks like for God to damn in temporal terms. If you can read what it looks like for God to damn in temporal terms without being affected, it's because you haven't read it at all. When you finish verse 68, you're not supposed to be in a flippant mood. You're not supposed to be okay. You're not supposed to say, well, that's interesting. I, I wonder what the J's score is. This is supposed to enter into your soul. That's what the text is designed to do. Number two. This is also critical to understand the history of Israel. This, very importantly, is given to Israel as a nation. Now, the nation is comprised of individuals. I understand that. But this is given to the nation. God has a special covenant with Israel as a nation. This is talking about national blessing and national disaster. Okay? That will become important in a moment. Now, what it means then is that God, looking at Israel as a nation, is saying, I've given you all of these covenant promises. I've given you all of these blessings. If you refuse my redemption and the blessings I offer you, then as a nation, you will experience these curses. We know, if you, as you keep reading, if you know your Old Testament history already, you know this. Reading this chapter is basically, it's a precy of all that's going to happen to Israel in the next centuries. This is exactly what happens to Israel. Again and again and again, until the Assyrians come in and destroy the northern ten tribes in 722, 721 BC, and the Babylonians destroy you know, the, the third wave uh, of exiles. The, the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem in, 70, in 587, 586 BC and destroy the temple. Read this chapter. This is prophetic of exactly what Israel will experience in its history when they disobey. It's what the prophets are talking about. And when you read the prophecy, you know, they're not just predicting the future. They're saying, you are going to experience disaster. Well, how do the prophets know that? It's partly at times because God is showing them what will happen in the future. But it's a lot more, that, more of the time is that God is just saying to the prophets, look, look around you. Read Deuteronomy. 
what's going to happen? Go tell the people. An enormous amount of the prophet's writing isn't predicting the future. It's calling people back to the law. Come back to the law. Don't you see what will happen? Haven't you read it? It's not rocket science. You don't need a spiritual gift to know what's going to happen in the next 200 years. God told you what's going to happen. You're disobeying. These curses are going to come. That's what the prophets are doing. They're, the real spiritual gifts, is just God give them discernment to apply the word properly. When we step out of this, and we apply it to individuals, people can get unnecessarily hurt. What Job's counselors are doing is applying exactly this type of theology to an individual person. As if the suffering that they are experiencing must be predicated on the sinfulness or the extent of their sinfulness. And that's where they go wrong. Because in a fallen world, individuals can suffer greatly because of sin in general, but not because of their sin specifically. In other words, God doesn't always just sort of come along and say, well, you've sinned this way, therefore there's this punishment on you. That's what Job's friends were doing. Job's friends were saying, well, look at how much you're suffering. The only way you can be suffering that much is if you're a really, 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 really big sinner. So we want to be very careful. We want to be extremely careful. That we recognize context, also covenant difference. This is God's national covenant with Israel as a nation. That's very different from the new covenant that he has with his individual believers in Christ. So what you, what you must not ever do is come alongside of people who are suffering and say, hey, you know what? The very fact that you're suffering means that you're disobeying God. I wonder what, God, I wonder what lesson God wants you to learn through this suffering. It must be pretty, pretty important. That is an abuse of texts like this. It's not what the Bible teaches. What this text does teach, though, is that there are consequences for decisions, and that is true on the individual level. If you obey God, you will be blessed. Not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, but there will be real, deep, genuine, eternal blessings for you if you obey God. If you do. If you disobey God, you will experience cursing in this life and forever. You will. There are consequences for your decisions. You reap what you sow. Now, there's this Old Testament principle that we've been talking about in the law. The physical points to the spiritual. And we've talked about this at different times. Here, all of the curses and blessings are cast in physical terms. Flocks, vineyards, uh, harvests, fertility, etc., etc., the curses are in terms of you know, uh, exile and, and enemies and drought and, and illness. It's all physical. But the physical is an object lesson teaching you about spiritual things. Which means that one of the things you're supposed to do when you read this text at this stage in God's redemptive history is to recognize that if you disobey God, there are enormous and inescapable spiritual consequences which you will also experience in the temporal world. 
Listen. You do realize that it is better to be murdered than to be a murderer. It is far, far, far worse to be a murderer than the victim of murder. If you had the choice, do you want to be someone who kills another person in cold blood or would you rather be killed? If there's any spiritual sensitivity, there's no debate at all. Would you rather be lied to or be a liar? Everything we do spiritually affects and impacts us. This is so important to understand. I tell you this. If you are a liar, then not only will you not be believed eventually, but you'll also start believing other people. Or you'll, you'll stop believing other people. If you are a gossip, you will live in perpetual fear about what other people are saying about you. If you are bitter, you will be poisoned from the inside out. If you engage in, in, in all kinds of lustful thoughts... that will destroy your ability to actually have any kind of genuine intimacy with someone in a sexual way. The consequences of pornography are, are not just the local consequence. It destroys the person from the inside out. It, it ruins their ability to actually connect with someone in a deep and sexual way. There are no private sins. And so we can ignore that, or we can recognize every time you disobey God, there are consequences. That's just the way the world works. I've been in, in AIDS hospices in South Africa and seen people dying because of their sexual choices. You could write, if you obey God, you will be blessed. If you disobey God. The statistics of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa are utterly outside of the realm of comprehensibility. I mean, you can't, you can't comprehend them. If God was obeyed, they would all, get, they, they would all disappear. If you choose to smoke, don't be surprised if you get cancer. There are consequences for choices. We know that physically, but what God is pleading with us here is apply this lesson spiritually. Apply this lesson spiritually. You disobey me, there are consequences. Not because God is running around, you know, sort of striking you with this or striking you with that. It's just the inevitable unfolding of the moral universe. Now, God also is an active agent in this to bring punishment. We, we don't want to make it impersonal. But there's, God has also set up an order where if you live a certain way, there are just consequences. That's all there is to it. You can't be blessed in a deep spiritual way unless you obey. If you reject God, the glorious Lord, verse 58, 
you cannot be blessed. You must know that. Hear that. If you reject God, you cannot. It is logically impossible for you to be blessed. He's the source of blessing. He is blessing itself. If you turn from him, if you cut yourself off from him, where are you going to go to be blessed? Nowhere. There's no other source. God very clearly says, here are two ways. Blessing or curse. Life or death. Heaven or hell. The same thing Jesus is saying. There's a broad road and a narrow road. There's a way that leads to life. There's a way that leads to death. Which way do you want to be on? So the wisdom literature in Proverbs. There's, there's the wise man and there's the fool. And the wisdom literature that starts the book of Psalms. You're either with, sit with the righteous or you sit with the wicked. You're either blessed or you're destroyed. Psalm 1. I mean, this, this is... This is a long, protracted explanation of what the curses look like in this covenant context, but the principle is it's all through Scripture, for even from the very beginning. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat it, you will die. Life, death, right from Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And that today, even today, is exactly the choice that God gives you. Life and blessing, or death and cursing, there is no tertium quid. There's no third position. There's nothing in the middle. There never has been. It's all or nothing. Life and blessing, death and cursing, nothing else. Now, On Good Friday, we worked through Deuteronomy 21. Son receives inheritance. Rebellious son dies. Cursed is everyone who's impaled on a pole. Christ, the elder brother, receives the inheritance, dies in the place of the rebellious brother, so the rebellious brother can receive the inheritance. The fact that he died under the curse of God is displayed, is revealed by the fact that he was impaled on the pole, hung on the tree. We do say, very flippantly in our evangelical circles, Christ died for our sins. We say sometimes in, with strong language that Jesus Christ bore the curse in our place. If you want to know a little bit more about what bearing the curse of God looks like, read verses 15 through 68 again. This is not a light thing that Christ does for us. The horror and the magnitude of the curses are supposed to point us to the atonement of Christ. He bore God's curse. Do you see what that means? 
Do you see how comprehensive that is? Do you see the totality of what that looks like? And, and, and this, this is just the, the, the shadow of it. This is just giving us some categories in which we can begin to have a faint analogy for what he experiences. The curse that Christ experiences is infinitely more than this, this chapter. And we read this chapter, and we read it profitably, we read it thoughtfully. This, this is, I, I say this reverently, this is, I don't misunderstand. This is God-awful. And it doesn't even begin to whisper with the curse that Christ bore in our place. And so you read this chapter again and again and again and again, and, and let the totality of it just sink you. Recognize that there's someone who loves you so much, he took that for you. And infinitely more. This chapter is what helps us understand what it means to be cursed by God and impaled on a pole. This chapter helps us understand Galatians 3. This chapter helps us understand Romans 3. This, this chapter helps us understand the, 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 the gospel of narrative accounts. Small wonder that in Gethsemane Christ prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me. It is yet nonetheless, I'll drain it dry if that's what's required. And it was. This is the curse of God on our disobedience. What kind of a Savior is that? Who does that for someone? Who willingly takes that curse for the people who deserve it so they can experience the blessings of the first 14 verses and life eternal, which is the one thing they don't deserve? So then I'm torn. This chapter is just so terrible. But it helps us understand how great Christ is. What a Savior. What a Lord. They took the curse of God, my curse, so that I could live. I'll just stop because I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to feel about that. It's, it's too much. It's too much. Some things can be thought and felt in a moment, but worked through over a lifetime. Maybe even worked through over eternity. And that's what this is. May God help us, even in small part, to see the magnitude of this, to feel the weight of it. This is what Christ has done for us. I'm not asking musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.